so uh, down the street from us at Fifth Street in Roosevelt is a, a restaurant called Taco Cello. And a uh, great restaurant. And when it opened up, one of the kind of promotions they had for that restaurant was a mural that they had on the side of the, the, the restaurant. Uh, it was by a well-known street artist. And it was a huge get for them. I mean, this well-appreciated, loved street artist. And there's a beautiful mural that, that he put on the side of that building. But then one night, uh, this happened. Um, someone came and put uh, sort of gray spray, uh, spray paint all over that mural. Uh, and as you might imagine, the community was hugely upset by this. And why were they upset? Well, because um, this graffiti, what was scratched, what was spray painted on there, directly defaced the beauty of that mural. We, the community knew the beauty, the glory of that mural when, before that happened. And you see that sense of loss to see that happen now, to see the beauty and glory of that mural damaged in that way, to see someone having put, put that on there, made it less than it should be. It's a constant reminder of what it should be and what it now is because of what got spray painted on that mural. When we think of uh, our relationship between us and God, one of the things we've got to sort of wrestle with and what we're dealing with now in the wake of what we looked at last Sunday is the reality of sin. And this is a way for us to think about this. Remember last Sunday we talked about the garden. And God and Adam and Eve were in the garden, which represented really what God intended for all humanity, for us to have close relationship with God, close connection to God. And just the beauty and glory of that is, imagine that. The beauty and glory of close relationship with God all the time. So imagine being in a world where no one ever wonders, is there a God? Because they'll be like, well, he, I talk to him like every day. <laughs> He's right here. <laughs> right? Imagine a world where you never actually said, what's my purpose? What's the point of my life? You never wonder that because God is like, well, I made you. I can tell you. And you're like, oh, that makes sense. That's exactly it. That's exactly what I was created for. You can ask the creator himself. Imagine a world where you only, you never experience ugliness, never experience evil. All you ever experience is beauty and truth and goodness and love. But sin, of course, damages this. That's what happened in the garden, what's continued since then. Sin damages everything, but in particular, it damages the most beautiful work in all creation, uh, humanity. So imagine human life is like the mural, the beautiful mural at the center of creation. And sin is really our sin, our continued sin, damages and defaces and violates this. Um, our tendency to trade beauty for ugly words and thoughts. The ways in which we ignore abuse and neglect the weak and poor. The ways in which we give in to selfishness and pride and violence. The loss we feel is a sense of, we have a, the Bible gives us a sense of what human life should be like, but it's not like that. Our sin has sort of defaced and scratched it and violated it. Now, here's the thing, and here's the amazing reality of where we're at. That all this happened, we did this, and yet God still wants to find a way to be with us. He wants to fix the problem. We're the ones who've carved our ugly sin over all the lives he created for us. But rather than abandon us, God says he wants to be with us. He wants to find a way to bring connection back between us and him. So what is God going to do? Well, he has a huge plan that he sets up. And the plan begins with one people. So here's all humanity, full of sin. God says, I need to figure out a way for people to be able to come back in connection with me. We have to deal with sin. I'm going to start with one nation, the nation of Israel. And God says, I'm going to have a special relationship with this particular people, with the nation of Israel. With the promise that it's in this particular people he's going to begin to to do what was there in the garden, in the Garden of Eden. Live with humanity again. 
So we find this uh, verse repeated a couple of times. In Exodus and Leviticus, God says this, I will be your God to Israel, and you will be my people. I will dwell in your midst. So what's God doing here? God is saying, Israel, I'm going to start a relationship with you, and Israel is basically going to be a blueprint for the rest of humanity. I'm going to start with relationship with Israel, but eventually the idea is that there will be a relationship with all humanity, a close relationship between God and human beings. That's what God wants. He's going to start with Israel. But as we said, we can't ignore this problem, the problem of sin. Right? God is God. That doesn't go away. <laughs> it means when you say that God is God, the Bible has this sort of term that God is holy, which is to say God is pure in his love, in his goodness, in his righteousness. He's pure in his godness. He's fully God. And sin is a violation not just against sort of the things that God has created, the lives that he's given us. But it's also a violation against God himself, isn't it? And that means because God is holy and we're sinful, to get close to God, to get near to God, it's not just risky for us. It's dangerous because of the purity of who God is and the violation of our sin. Mount Everest is, is one of the highest mountains in the world. And many people, tons of people every year try to climb to the top of Mount Everest. I mean, people spent tons and tons of money just to get there. And so if you get there, you spend all this time and money and energy just to get to the bottom of the mountain, you for sure want to make your way to the top. So tons of people go there every year. But the thing about Everest is Everest is Everest, right? It's, it doesn't care how much money you spent and how much time you spent to get there. It's a, it gets a dangerous place to be. At particular times, I mean, you you will face storms that rage all over the place there, just at any, any particular moment. I mean, just to even get, to get at the very top of Mount Everest, there's little oxygen, so you need oxygen tanks. The temperature drops, so you're at risk of frostbite, frostbite if, you're not, if you don't have the, um, the, the, the gear and all the things that you need. And as I said, at any moment, particularly at the top, a storm can come through. And when that happens, when storms come through at the very top, basically you've got to turn back. You can't be there. It's too dangerous to be at the top. But here's the thing. People still try to get to the top. Even if storms raging, all those things happening, people every year still try to get to the top, and regularly people die trying to get to the top. Because as I said, Mount Everest is what it is. It is beautiful and awesome to be there at the top. You're at the top of the world, literally, and to look out. It's a beautiful, amazing thing to experience in person, but it will kill those who are there when they should not be there. This is a way for us to think of this problem. The problem of God and God wanting to have a relationship with us and the problem of our sin. God is holy, as I said. Holy, holy, holy is what it says in Isaiah. Powerful, majestic in his glory. And I want you to understand, we were created to experience the full glory and holiness of God. You were created to be able to stand at the mountain and look at the view and be like, this is amazing. You were created not just to look at the view, to have it come out from you. We are created to reflect God. So you were created to reflect his holy love and his holy glory and his holy beauty. To be like this, this mirror that shines out into the rest of the world and the rest of creation. You were created to stand there at the top of the mountain. You were meant to stand there. There's a problem, though. As we said, it's the problem of sin. We were meant to connect with God. But now, us trying to connect with God is like us trying to climb Mount Everest in shorts and T-shirt. No oxygen tanks with a storm raging everywhere. It can't be done. The mountain will kill you. The holiness of God means that the only way you can stand in the presence of God is if you're fully covered 
with holiness, with his holiness. If you're fully covered with goodness and righteousness and love. You've got to be fully covered with that if you're going to be able to stand in the presence of God. What sin does is strip that away from you constantly. So you're standing there without being covered in holiness and goodness and love. You're standing there vulnerable and at risk. And that's a big problem for us to even think about how we have a relationship with God. We might not sense that problem, but God knows it. He knows who he is. But again, this is, again, the stunning thing about who God is. The God isn't saying, well, look how sinful they are. There's no way they can stand in my presence. It's done. God is saying, there must be a way for this to work. I'm going to make there a way for this to work. So God establishes a way in which a plan to bring relationship with us, to make us be able to stand before God and be in relationship with him and not be crushed, not disintegrate in his presence. So what does God do? Again, he starts with Israel, but he starts with one particular thing. It's what we call, which the Bible calls the tabernacle. It's described this way in Exodus chapter 25, verse 8. He says, let them, Israel, make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Sanctuary, I mean, it's referring to what we call the tabernacle. Tabernacle literally means dwelling place. So the whole story, many of you are familiar with, uh, you know, Prince of Egypt and those movies, right, the Ten Commandments. That's what we're talking about here. We're talking about Israel being in slavery in Egypt. God rescues them from slavery, brings them to Mount Sinai. And he says, I'm going to have a special relationship with humanity. I'm going to start with you, the nation of Israel. I'm going to have a relationship, close relationship with you. I'm going to have what the Bible says, a covenant with you. What God is doing is bringing back Eden, isn't he? He says, I'm going to have a committed relationship with you, and it's going to look like us living together like I used to do with Adam and Eve. I want to have that be there. But Israel is sinful just like everyone else. They also overlook the weak and poor. They have a tendency to be selfish and prideful. It happened even when God sent Moses to rescue them. They're like, we don't believe this. Moses, go away. The sin is within Israel. They'll disintegrate in the presence of a holy God. Even God is even God saying, look, I want to be here with you. They can't, there's no way they can be there. So God says, I'm going to establish a dwelling place. I'm going to establish a tabernacle so that we can be in relationship with each other. And so that's the fix. What's the tabernacle? Well, it's basically this large tent where God says he's going to be. Now, understand, God's not homeless. He doesn't need affordable housing, right? This isn't sort of God figuring out a way to find a place to stay. No, what God is basically saying is, I'm going to be especially present here. God is present everywhere, but out of all the places in the world, God's going to say, I'm going to especially show up here for these people, in connection with these people. I'm going to especially have a home here. But the tabernacle, as we'll see, is going to let us have life with God. It's going to let Israel have life with God, but it's limited. Like, this isn't really the full thing, what it should be. It's like jury-rigged solution, right, a stopgap. The reality is sin limits how close we can be with God, and the tabernacle reflects this. So we look through this tabernacle today as we kind of go through it. You'll see, like, this is a temporary measure. It does some really important things. God wants to be with us. But it's a constant reminder, but sin is in the way. Sin is in the way for what things should be like. Now, if you want to do this, you can read this yourself. I mean, we see the tabernacle as this temporary solution in need of a permanent answer. But God says, but here's, here's what we're going to do for now. And we can read about it in Exodus 25 to 31. That's where God sort of gives Moses the instructions for the tabernacle. Then Exodus 35 to 40, Moses is giving the instructions to the Israelites. He says, okay, here's what you need to do. I got it from God. Here's what you do. And at the end of all that, God comes. His glory comes and fills the tabernacle and he dwells there. Now, there's all these different parts to the tabernacle. And I'm going to give you sort of an aerial view of it. The tabernacle is it's not, this is not a huge thing. It's about the quarter the size of a football field, right? So this is not huge. Pretty basic, right? 
It's basically a large tent, as I said, made of linen and yarn. And then I will sort of kind of, I'm going to do kind of a walkthrough. Here's what it's been like to walk through the tabernacle. We'll kind of go from the outside in, and then once we get inside, we'll work our way back out. And I'll talk about the different things that are within the tabernacle, why, why they're there. Some of these things you might have heard of, but you never maybe thought about, like, why is that there? What does that refer to? So hopefully I'll be able to show that as we go this morning. Um, there's basically three sections to the tabernacle. There's the outer court, then there's the holy place, and then there's the most holy place, or the holy of holies. So we have the outer court. First, you go to come up to the tabernacle, you see those sort of, those tents, those are not curtains that are there. You pass through those curtains, and then you be in what's called the outer courtyard. There is an altar, a bronze altar, right in the center there, as well as a basin for washing. But again, as I said, as we work our way back out, I'll explain each of these things. Then you go into the actual tent itself. And in the tent is the holy place. There is uh, an altar of incense there, right in front of that curtain. There is a table containing fresh bread. And then there's a menorah, a lampstand, basically. And you'll notice those, those this isn't a great representation, <laughs> but uh, those, those uh, pictures that are in the curtain are cherubim. There were the cherubim as you walked into the tent, and then cherubim as you walk even further into the tabernacle. The, tab- uh, the cherubim are basically uh, angelic guardians. They're sort of beings that remind you, hey, you're, you're going into an even more holy place, more sacred place, more danger <laughs> as you go in. There's another representation of this uh, that I like because that other representation sort of is a computer image, but this is more of a sense of what it would like to be there. It would have been full of smoke because uh, smoke was constantly burning there, and I'll explain why that's the case in a second here. Um, smoke and incense would have been in there. Finally, as you move through that last curtain, here's the innermost chamber of the tabernacle, uh, the holy of holies or the most holy place, right? And so... Those are the different sections, and now we're going to sort of work our way back out, right? And as we work our way back out, let's talk about each section and what's in each section and why it's there. So we're already in the most innermost section, that the, and really this is the most sacred room in the tabernacle. It's the most sacred because this is where the Ark of the Covenant is, right? Uh, what's the Ark of the Covenant? Well, basically this is where God actually meets with people, where God actually lives, if you could, if you could put it that way. Uh, when we read this, this is from Exodus chapter 25, verse 22. God says to Moses, he's talking about the ark here, the ark of the covenant. After they make it, he says, there is where I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim, that are on the ark of the testimony. I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment of the people of Israel. So here's where God is going to meet with Moses or the high priest. And if you think about it, the ark of the covenant is basically like the bottom part of God's throne room. The way the Bible talks about it is like, imagine like God sitting in his throne and this is the bottom platform. Some parts of the Bible speak of it as like God's footstool. So he's got, God's saying, I'm going to extend heaven, the heavenly throne room down into this place so I can meet with you and speak with you. Right, this is what makes it holy. Right? Here's exactly where God is going to be and meet with people and talk with people. You see the ark is basically just a wood box covered with gold. You see the poles that are there? Those are gold poles because you're never supposed to touch the ark. You Anywhere they, this is, remember, they, they build this while they're traveling through the wilderness before they get to Palestine. So it's got to be mobile. They've got to be able to carry it around. So you only carry it using those poles. Inside of this gold box are just a couple things. There's the Ten Commandments, and later on they add the staff of Aaron, and then also a jar of manna. And manna was the food that God provided for his people while they were traveling through the wilderness. So why are those things in the box? Well, the Ten Commandments are a reminder that, that hey, for us to be in right relationship, you've got to listen to me. You gotta listen to me, you gotta follow me, right? 
what was true in the garden is still true. <laughs> I'm God, you're not, you've got to listen to me, you've got to follow me. But also the fact that the staff and the manna are there are reminders that, but here's the kind of God I am. I'm going to provide for you. I'm going to guide you. You had no food in the wilderness. You remember, I gave you food. You don't know where to go? You need protection? The staff was there, the staff of Aaron, right, to divide the sea and all the things that happened there. It's a reminder of, but in all this, what we're seeing here, and one of the things that, that's true for each section of the tabernacle is God is always basically saying in each section, hey, I want to be with you. I want to have a relationship with you. But there's limits here. We've got to deal with the reality of sin. And that's true in this section as well. God is saying, here's the things that I want to have for you, but we've got to deal with sin. And that's the point of the, what's called the atonement cover. That's that gold lid that's on top of there. So what's the point of the atonement cover? Let me just read. The Bible itself explains what was going on there. This is Hebrews chapter 9, verses 6 to 7. God wants to live with us, but we've got to deal with sin. We need to atone for it. Hebrews 9 says this. The priest go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. Right? That's the holy place. But into the second, that means the most holy place, the holy of holies where we just were, only the high priest goes. And he but once a year and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. So basically there's animal sacrifice that's done. And once a year, you take the blood of that animal sacrifice and you're sprinkling it on the ark. So what's going on here? Again, let's remember... God wants to be with his people. He wants relationship with you. He wants relationship. Starting with Israel, he wants relationship with human beings, but sin has got to be dealt with. And the way you deal with sin is you need forgiveness and you need cleansing. And that was done through animal sacrifice. But in some, many ways, they're using the language of the nations around them in a way different way than the other nations. So nations all around did animal sacrifices, but you did it a lot of ways to basically feed the gods. They're hungry, here's some food, right? But God doesn't need us to fix them a plate, right? That's not what's going on here. The animal sacrifice is not for God, it's for us, right? Sin is a violation. With such severe consequences, it basically says, I mean, what, what's the consequence of sin? It's a violation that requires your life. It's like standing at the top of Mount Everest, right? You're going to surrender your life if you're going to stand there. It requires the giving of a life, and that's represented by this animal sacrifice. It's a reality of realizing sin would disintegrate us. And here's a substitute. Here's a way to atone for sin, to provide forgiveness and cleansing. So once a year, the high priest goes and does that. A reminder that, like, hey, God, this is God initiating this. I want to stay in relationship with you. Let's deal with the reality of all that's going on, the dark and evil and wrong things that are happening in the world, in your hearts, in your lives. We've got to deal with this. I can't ignore it. I'm God. Here's a way in truth that was dealt with. So that was dealt with on that cover, uh, on the atonement cover in the, in the Ark of the Covenant. So that's... The most holy place, the holy of holies. If we move out into the next section, that was, uh, this is called the holy place. And there's three things in there. And the first one we're going to look at, as you see there represented uh, by a picture, is uh, the table of bread, right? The table is a table that holds, actually holds, it's not represented in that picture. It holds gold plates, pitchers, bowls. But really the most central thing there is the bread of presence. Every Sabbath day, priests would go in there. They put fresh bread in the table. And the bread that was there, that was left over, they would eat it. They'd take it out and they would eat it, right? And so what's the point of this, right? What's the point of this table? Again, God doesn't need us to fix him a plate. He doesn't need food. But what does it remind you of when you look at that table, that fresh bread? And if, there was, if you saw cups and pitchers and other things there, it probably it reminds you of like a family dinner, doesn't it? Of a meal. But what's God saying here? Again, I, like I said, each section is God saying, 
This is the kind of life I want to have with you. Relationship, home, connection with you. Back then, ancient times, having a meal with someone is saying something really significant to them. I want close friendship with you. I want relationship with you. So here is right there in, the most, in a holy place, right in front of the Ark of the Covenant is this table to represent that. Also in that place, you remember this, the, the, the lampstand that was there, the menorah. Seven branches, basically looks like a golden tree with blossoms on it, right? So seven lamps on each of those, and these lamps were always to be lit, never to go out. Right? So regularly, day and night, priests would go in to make sure that lamp was always burning. So what's the meaning of this? Well, I, and there's a lot of just sort of talk about this, but you can't help but think of like God's light, right? In the first day of creation, it's shining out. Right, especially his shining out over the bread. This is the only light inside that place. So it reminds you of the light of God shining out in creation. And it's seven, right? So it reminds you of the seven days of creation, of completion, of all that God did to establish the world and establish a relationship with us, right? The fact that it looks like a tree has to remind you of the tree of life, right? This, the reminder of, hey, this is Eden again, isn't it? It's Eden again, but, but not fully, <laughs> Not fully in all the ways that it should be. I mean, what we have here is the feeling of an ancient home. The main pieces of furniture in an ancient home were, were a lampstand, were a table, right, for eating. So here again, God is saying, we're going to be together, we're going to have a relationship with each other. But it's eating, but in like way reduced form. Because I remember the thing I've been saying. In each section, we're saying, God wants a relationship with us. He's going to establish connection between human beings. What about sin? What about our sin? What are we going to do with that? Well, the way that was dealt with here, a reminder of the fact that we still have to deal with sin is the altar of incense. That's the third thing that's in this, uh, this section. This was about three feet tall, made of gold. And this said, uh, actually it was the high priest. Every morning, every evening comes in, burns incense on there. So what it meant, and that's why I showed that other picture, is every time he walked in there, it was full of smoke. Right? Because it's always burning. Always giving a smell. Always giving off smoke. Every single time priests were in there. Why is this place always going to be covered with smoke? Well, here's what it says in Leviticus 16, 13. So the cloud of the incense may cover the mercy seat that is over the testimony so that he does not die. God says there's got to be smoke here because even the fact that you're sort of, I mean, the, holy, the most holy place is, is behind a curtain, right? You're not standing there, but God is so holy, you're, so, you're almost too close to him. This is like a smoke screen to cover whoever is there. The holiness of God it's like the, it's protection from the Mount Everest of God's glory and holiness, right? So again, we're reminded of sin. But even here, we're reminded also of the grace of God. Because that incense is like the smokescreen to protect anyone who is in there from the fact that God is fully holy and the people who are standing there are not that way. They're not holy like God is. They're not righteous and loving like he is. But the Bible tells us the smoke of the incense going, off, going up in the air also represents the prayers of God's people. So here is God saying, like, you, I am, your sin prevents us from having direct relationship with each other. Here's this sort of block between us, and yet I still want to hear from you. This incense, every time you see the incense coming out from the tent, it's God saying, I will hear from you. I will hear your prayers. I want to listen to you. Why does God want to listen to us? Because God is saying, this is a starting point for where I eventually want to bring us back to. Close relationship with each other. Close connection with each other. Family. So, we have the, we were in the Holy of Holies, we are in the holy place. Now if we go outside the tent, you remember the things that were in the outer courtyard. There were two things. Uh, there was a bronze altar, and there was a basin, bronze basin for washing. 
the bronze altar, we can basically all the sacrifices you read about in Leviticus, the first seven chapters of Leviticus, this is where the sacrifices happen. They would kill the animals in the courtyard, then they would sprinkle the blood of the animal on the base of the altar and burn the animal on the altar. And this was constantly burning. It never stopped. Constantly going. You know, why do we have this? Well, once a year, they got to do a day of atonement for all the people. But regularly, the people have to come and bring their sacrifices because regularly they're sinful. They're standing, they're in the presence of God all the time. And so this is a reminder of the constant fact that we can't ignore the fact that there's been paint sprayed on the souls of humanity. We can't ignore the fact that God is holy, fully clothed in righteousness and love and truth, and we're coming up in filthy rags and shreds. Here's a way to atone. Here's a way to, to at least find some way for us to be in one another's presence. So this is constantly burning, right? It's dealing with the reality of sin. As we said, there's also a basin. Uh, this was for washing. The priests would wash their hands and their feet before they go inside the tabernacle, before they offer the sacrifices. Again, what's it saying? The need to cleanse, the need to purify, right? The need to sort of to get clean before you stand before a holy God. <clears throat> and so all Israelites would have access to the outer courtyard because that's where they bring their sacrifices, right, to offer atonement for their sins, forgiveness of their sins, and worship of God and in, in all the particular ways we read about in Leviticus, but only priests could go into the holy place, right, where the, the, the table was, where the lampstand is. And only the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies. And he could only do that once a year on the Day of Atonement. So, again, here's sort of a full picture of it. If you walk in, you have that outer courtyard. One of the things that's there is the, on the outside there, I don't know if it shows up as well on the screens. There's tables there to bring in your animals, right? So everything happens in that courtyard. You bring in the, the animal sacrifice, they kill it there, they do it right on the altar there. And here's a more sort of artistic representation. And I like this one because you see the smoke constantly going up. It never stops. The work always continues. There's never sort of a day off, right? Because life is continuous, right? And they're living with God. And God is a constant saying, I want to be with you. So you're always knowing you're connected to God. But you're always reminded of sin. You're always remembered, reminding of the violation, right? Of the facing, of the fact that like, here's a holy God, and here's human beings, <laughs> and we're trying to put the two together. So there's a full picture. What does all of this show? Uh, first thing, and we've been saying this, God wants life in relationship with us. God wants to live with you and me. What an amazing, beautiful thing that is. I mean, do you believe this, that God, you're, we have a lot of different conceptions of God, people have a lot of different ideas of God, but just really sort of take God, the Bible's view of God. He is fully good and loving and righteous and says, I want to live with you no matter who you are, no matter where you're from. I want to live with you, have a relationship with you. God wants to live with you. But also, number two, it says God is so much God. He's so holy and so pure and we are so dysfunctional and toxic in our sin, we can't have direct relationship with him. We'll disintegrate. We can't stand there in his presence. Those two things our attention with each other. And we see the tabernacle as a way to sort of resolve this tension, right, for God to be with his people, but have the kind of forgiveness and atonement that's necessary to deal with sin. But it's a substitute, right? It's a stopgap. It's a jury-rigged solution. It's, this, is, this isn't what it should be. I imagine, like, trying to have dinner with your family, but there's dividers everywhere, right? Imagine, like, trying to, like, eat blindly, right? Like, this is, it's something, but we, we saw what it should be. We know the picture of what it should be. We know what it should be, and it's not that way. 
we immediately recognize this is a temporary solution. God is establishing something that's a blueprint for a final plan. And God's final plan is to bring a permanent solution. And we know that permanent solution, of course, is Jesus. Jesus solves the problem here. Remember that illustration I gave about uh, Mount Everest earlier. People get to Everest and die trying to get to the top, right? They can't handle the conditions up there. They make all these mistakes. They'll bring enough supplies. They try to keep going in the midst of a fierce storm and they die trying to get to the top. However, people do get to the top every year. Not everyone dies. And the reason there's people who get to the top and survive is because of guides who take them there. Uh, used to be known as Sherpas. Now they call them, I just read this yesterday, high-altitude mountain workers. I'll still call them Sherpas because it's mostly <laughs> people from uh, Nepal, right, who do this, right? And they deserve the credit <laughs> for what they do. Um, these Sherpas, high-altitude mountain workers, we don't understand, they give all of themselves to keep people alive and safe up there. In some cases, the Sherpas literally take the burden off of the hikers who are getting up there and struggling and put it on themselves so that they don't have to struggle to get up there. In some cases, Sherpas put their own lives at risk for the sake of the hikers. The Sherpas who have sacrificed their own bodies to save the lives of those who really should have suffered the consequences of their bad choices themselves. Went up there without enough supplies, kept pushing forward, and the Sherpas do what is necessary to save the lives. They give their food, their supplies, their lives ultimately. So those who are up there when they shouldn't be there are able to actually be up there and live and survive. The Bible says we are meant for God. The Bible says you were meant for God. You were meant to stand at the top of the mountain of creation and enjoy it all and know it all and experience it all. It was there for you, you and God together at the top of the mountain of creation. Sin makes it impossible for us to get there in one piece. The tabernacle is this way around this somewhat, but not a great way, right? It's not what it should be. That's why God sends Jesus. That's why God comes to himself in Jesus. And, I mean, he's kind of like that Sherpa, isn't he? The divine Sherpa who brings us to God. What does Jesus do, the Bible says? Jesus takes the burden of sin and puts it on himself. What does the Bible say Jesus do? Jesus absorbs the consequences that should have fallen on us and takes it on himself. We should have died and sacrificed our life before a holy God. And Jesus says, I'm so determined to get you to God, I'll take it myself. And Jesus recognized because he's the son of God, it means it's God himself saying it. Absorbing the consequences, taking the burden, sacrificing his life so that we can make it to God and not die in his presence, but stand there. Not just stand there, but live there. God with us and us with God. You know, Hebrews sums it all up in this way. This is Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. Hebrews is essentially commentary on all the things that we talked about, the Old Testament, sacrifice system. And what the Hebrew writer is saying is, look, just think about it. The sacrifice has got to be offered every single day. The smoke has constantly got to go up. Washing and cleaning has to be done constantly. God is present in the tabernacle, but there's no direct access. There's no direct relationship. Only once a year could the high priest go and stand before God and under the cover of smoke and with the sprinkling of blood. Sin is being addressed, but not really. It's not really fully taking away sin. As one person mentioned, uh, I was reading about, like, if you think about it, the tabernacle has no chairs in it, right? When you go into the holy place, 
there's the table, there's a lampstand, but homes usually have a chair. Why is there no chair? Because there's work to do constantly, right? You always have to, you have to tend to the table. You have to light the lamps. You've got to make sure the incense is going. There's constantly work to be done there to even come near God. But there's a different way, isn't there? A way that God provides in and through Jesus Christ. Verse 12. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat at the right hand of God, finally a chair, waiting for them, waiting for that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sacrificed. Jesus is able to come into the place and he does it once. He can do it once because think about the countless sins of humanity. Think about your countless sins. Right? Think of all the things you've done wrong, all the ways you've been selfish, prideful, the ways in which you've neglected people, overlooked things. Think of all the things you've done past, present, and that you will do. And multiply it by the billions and billions and billions and billions and billions and billions of people who have lived on this planet. How are you going to deal with that? How are you going to cover that? Well, it's infinite almost, isn't it? Fortunately, there's an infinite life to cover it. The God of the universe, Jesus Christ, comes, takes the infinite burden of our sin, takes the consequences of our sin onto himself, and covers it all so that, like it says there, by a single offering, he can perfect all those who are being sanctified. I mean, praise God for what he does. And so what does that mean? What's the application of this? Well, let's let Hebrews lead us in the end here. Because of all this, here's what that means. Therefore, brothers and sisters... Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtains, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, because of all that Jesus has done, here's what we get to do. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure blood. Because God has done this through Jesus, because you can stand at the top of the mountain, and have close relationship with God, that means, yes, you can draw near. And so one of the things I would say this morning to you is you should have every confidence that God hears you and listens to you if you've trusted in Jesus. There is nothing you have done or could do that can prevent you having life, intimate life with God. Because fortunately, it's not your righteousness, it's not your purity, it's not your goodness that's covering you and protecting you from the elements. It's God's righteousness, God's purity, God's goodness, and it's perfect. It's all you need. It's all you need and more. And all that's still there, God is doing a process of cleansing you and making you so that what you are, by being covered by Jesus, you'll be all, all, all the way through in the inside. You can draw near. You can draw near to God. He will hear you. I don't care how you look, what you've done, what you think you've done. If you're trusting yourself, then yes, you should feel guilty and burdened. But if you're trusting in the God who brought you there, the one who stripped himself naked and gave you all that he had so you could stand before Jesus, before, before God one day. Jesus strips himself so you can stand before God. You can draw near. You can draw near, as it says there, with confidence. A true heart, full assurance of faith because you're clean and washed by the blood of Jesus. That makes every difference for the decisions you got to make. It makes every difference for the kind of work that you do. It makes every difference for the kind of family that you have. Every difference for the kind of relationships that you're in. You do that now, not alone, but there with God at the top of the mountain. 
his beauty and glory all there in your life. And we do this not by what we've done, but by what Jesus has done. We take hold of it not by our hope in ourselves, but hope in Christ and what he's done. We have life with God again. We have it with Jesus. Let's make no mistake to think that this is something that we could ever have accomplished ourselves. Let's do it all knowing, as it says, the insurance of faith that God has done what only he can do in Christ. And we stand there as a result of it. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for uh, what we have. And thank you for, Lord, this ancient picture, Lord. And, and Lord, uh, I know we read tabernacle and all these things that kind of, kind of blur over us, Lord. What it means, what it represents, Lord. But on all these things, each symbol, each part of this tabernacle represents something really important to us. You having a desire to move to where we're at in our sin. But also not ignoring the fact that you're God and we are human beings. We're sinful. Thank you, Lord God, because of what you've done. Thank you, Jesus, because of what you've done. All the curtains have been teared down. There's no more courtyard for us to have to wait in. There's no more one priest every year going into the holy place. Lord, we are able to stand with you. Or it's more than that, we're able to live with you. And so I just pray there's a deep sense, Lord, of being able to draw near for all of us this week. Draw near, draw close, and absorb into our lives all of your goodness and righteousness, Lord, because it's there in and through Jesus Christ. Lord, may that encourage and strengthen our hearts. Lord, may, Lord, we have a deep sense that, Lord, we walk every step we take, every breath we make. Uh, you are now present with us fully as the God that you are. But thank you for your love for us, and we thank you for Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.